All right, last weekend was our more weekend, which was so fun. We had several opportunities for each one of us to grow in our experience of the Holy Spirit, which is one of our core, our three core values, experiencing the Spirit. It was a great weekend, and we're excited um, to continue to pursue God in this whole area and to experience his presence. And one of the ways we want to continue to grow in this is in, is, is in a new prayer, ex, a prayer opportunity, prayer experience that's starting today. If you're watching this, sun, this Sunday morning on video, it starts today. That's, that's tomorrow for a Saturday night crowd. But we, we are creating a drop-in prayer opportunity every Sunday afternoon from 4 to 6. Anytime during those two hours, you can come here to the 15th Street campus and receive prayer from a prayer team. We will be providing two kinds of prayer, healing prayer and listening prayer. So if you have a need for physical healing, we encourage you to come and be prayed for. We actually had three separate people, three people this last weekend that were healed of shoulder problems this last weekend being prayed for in our services or by prayer teams. Three people emailed me or sent me a letter and said, God healed my shoulder. So that is awesome. So if you need healing prayer, you can come between four and six on a Sunday afternoon. If you didn't sign up for a listening prayer time last weekend, you were thinking, ah, oh, I wish I had done that. You can come and experience listening prayer. We will have a listening prayer team available. You don't have to sign up ahead of time. Just come to the community room here at 15th Street between 4 and 6 on any Sunday afternoon starting this very weekend. We're calling this the prayer experience. We want to provide a regular opportunity for people to be prayed for and experience more of what God has for them. So I encourage you, I urge you to take advantage of that opportunity. Teams will be here. Please receive prayer, listening prayer, healing prayer. Come any Sunday afternoon. Okay, well today we are starting a new teaching series that I'm super excited about. This series was actually birthed in my heart a few months ago during my sabbatical. One day, as I was spending some time with the Lord, I was kind of thinking about how crazy our society is right now. With the election, and with racial tension, and, and the violence, there's so much fear and anger and unsettledness. I mean, we all sense it, we all see it. Things in our world are kind of a, a, kind of a mess right now. So I was, as I was thinking about these realities, I felt the Lord lay on my heart a particular chapter of scripture from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. It is an amazingly powerful and relevant portion of scripture for us. What prompted the writing of this particular chapter was a very significant event in the history of the nation of Israel. It occurred in 586 BC when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem, including the temple that Solomon had built. And then they sent the Jewish people into exile to Babylon, which was a huge, horrible thing for God's people. I mean, think of it. The temple in Jerusalem represented God's presence with his people. And now that very temple is destroyed and the people are taken 700 miles away in Babylon, which was the antithesis of God's holiness. Babylon was a place of idolatry and immorality and false religion, a very godless and evil place. And that is now their new home for decades. So imagine how the people of Israel felt living in a godless society under the fearful regime of Nebuchadnezzar, who at a moment's notice would fly into a rage and execute people for not knowing the dream that he had the night before. 
And we think our choices for president have issues, um, right? I mean, this was the kind of government the people of Israel were living under. I mean, you can imagine the fear and the unsettledness and the anxiety of living in this place. And so God prompts Isaiah, the prophet, to give a specific message to his people in the midst of this very difficult situation. And there is one primary thing that God wants his people to do in the midst of their fears. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 40. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Now this word here doesn't fully capture the ancient text. A better word is the word behold. That's the message God wants his people to receive. Behold your God. Look afresh at this God of yours. In the midst of your fears about the future, in the midst of your anger at those who rule over you, in the midst of your frustration over circumstances and your despair and hopelessness, God says to us, I want you to look at me. I want you to see me for who I am. Because in that seeing, while your circumstances around you may not change, you will change. Your heart will change. Your faith will be strengthened. Your hope will be renewed. Behold your God. Behold your God. That's the command. Take your eyes off your circumstances. Take your eyes off the election, off of the things that are weighing you down, and instead, behold your God. Look at him. Now, what happens starting in verse 10 and going to the end of this chapter is Isaiah gives us this incredible vision of God. Who is this God that we are to behold? And what we see in these verses are three overarching attributes that reveal who God is. And so each week in this three-part series, we're going to be looking at one of these attributes. And my prayer, my prayer is that each week we will be inspired to behold this God, to gaze upon him. And in doing so, all of us will find that our attitude about life gets completely shifted in the positive direction. Okay, so the attribute we're going to focus on today is God's transcendence. God's transcendence. Transcendence means that God's, God, God is greater than we can imagine. He, he transcends his creation. He is not a created being, so he is not dependent upon his creation in any way. He is above and beyond. Transcendence speaks of God's supremacy, his sovereignty, his excellence, his majesty. I mean, honestly, one of the best words to describe this is a word that is so overused, it doesn't really fit anymore, but that's the word awesome, right? We talk now about everything being awesome, right? This car is awesome, the ice cream is awesome, that game was awesome, but God truly is awesome. He is, he is beyond what we could even imagine in terms of his greatness. Now, all that's wonderful, but how, how do we behold him? How do we get our brains around this aspect of God? Well, Isaiah helps us do that by painting in these verses an amazing verbal mural 
He paints an amazing verbal mural that vividly describes God's transcendence. So in this description, we learn three things about this transcendent God. First, we learn that God is bigger than we can imagine. He is bigger than we can imagine. Look, look with me beginning in verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? I mean, this is such a cool description because it, it, it evokes our imagination, right? Who has measured the oceans in the palm of his hand? Our God has. Who, who has measured the breadth of the universe within his fingers? Our God has. See, that, that's saying something, considering how big the universe is. I mean, in 2011, the Hubble telescope discovered the most distant galaxy, at that point, the most distant galaxy ever seen. It was 13.2 billion light years away. Now, just to get some perspective here, a light year is how far light can travel in an entire year. So it takes eight minutes for light from the sun to get to us. That's 93 million miles in eight minutes. So how far could light travel in a year? It's a long way. That's just one light year. Multiply that by 13.2 billion, and that's how big our universe is, and it's expanding. And Isaiah says... Our God holds the universe in the palm of his hand. He is bigger than we could even imagine. It boggles the mind. Well, Isaiah then brings us a little closer to home. Verse 15, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. I mean, I can imagine that these words would have had particular encouragement for the Israelites. I mean, they had been overtaken decades earlier by big, bad Babylon. I mean, superpower to the max. And I'm sure that the people felt helpless and small. They were under the Babylonian regime. There was nothing they could do about that. So Isaiah says to them, surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. God is so much bigger than governments and world powers. They're, they're like dust on the scales to him. And what an important reminder for us as well. I mean, we, we may look at our worlds and we feel like it's spinning out of control with the situation in Syria and, and power-hungry leaders in North Korea and Iran. I mean, the, the thought of, of them having nuclear weapons is frightening and Isaiah says to us, North Korea is nothing more than a dust mite on God's hand. The United States, just a drop in a bucket to God. See, the question is, we, we, we as believers, are we, we as believers going to focus on these things and these world events that are all out of control and be filled with anxiety? Or are we going to choose to behold our God? to see him for who he really is. He is bigger, way bigger than you can even imagine. Behold the bigness of your God. Behold the bigness of your God. Which leads to the second aspect of God's transcendence that Isaiah describes. God is wiser than we can comprehend. He is wiser than we can comprehend. Look with me at verse 13 and 14. Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord? 
or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Who, whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? And, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? See, Isaiah is using all these different words that describe various facets of understanding, right? In terms of knowledge, of enlightenment, of wisdom, of discernment. And his repeated question is this, who instructed God about those things? Who was God's counselor? Who was God's consultant? Who was God's teacher? No one. No one. God is so far beyond our knowledge and our wisdom and our understanding. I mean, we, we as humans, you know, we pride ourselves, um, yeah, just especially in our society, we, we pride ourselves on our technological advancements, right? And, and it is incredible. It is incredible what the computer and internet and cell phone, all those things have brought into our lives in terms of knowledge and understanding. But isn't it interesting how the things we think are so amazing, the things we think are so cool right now, we will be embarrassed by in 10 years, right? We will be embarrassed by, remember floppy drives or flip phones? Sorry for those of you who still have one. Um, remember VHS players? I mean, at, at any point in history... At any point in history, we could easily stop and pat ourselves on the back for how smart we are and how advanced our society is compared to others. But in, in 50 years, in 50 years, people will look back at us and laugh at our technology. The reality is we are not nearly as smart as we think we are. Which is why Isaiah's words are desperately needed. We can easily start thinking that we could do a much better job running the universe than God. I mean, if God, I mean, have you ever heard this and maybe wrestled with it? If God really existed, why would he allow these horrible things to happen? I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God that would allow these horrible things to happen. I totally understand that wrestling. I totally understand that response. But, 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 but let's think about it for just a moment. Think about that for just a moment. What you're really saying is that if God's ways don't fit into your understanding, he can't possibly exist. That's what you're saying. If God's ways don't fit into your understanding, he cannot possibly exist. Do you really want to place yourself in that position? I remember years ago taking my youngest son, Joshua, to the emergency room because he had split his, his forehead open. And he was probably three years old. And so the doctor asked me to hold Joshua down. There was, you know, he was, he was fully awake. To hold Joshua down, kind of face to face. I'm holding him there, you know, like, like this. While he put stitches in Joshua's forehead. So there I'm holding him, you know, face to face. He's crying, he's screaming. And I am sure in Joshua's little three-year-old mind, I'm sure he was thinking all sorts of bad things about me. I mean, how could my dad who supposedly loved me, how could he allow this stranger to inflict this pain upon me? I thought my dad loved me. I thought he cared about me. But you see, I had information that Joshua didn't have. I knew, I knew there was a bigger purpose in his pain. I just needed Joshua to trust me as his dad. God is a good God, and his wisdom is beyond our comprehension, which means we may not always understand what he's doing, but we can look to him. We can behold him in his wisdom, acknowledging that his ways are beyond ours, that his understanding is beyond our very limited understanding. So rather than lecturing him or choosing to stop believing in him 
because we, we don't agree with or understand something he's doing, perhaps we ought to gaze upon him. Perhaps we ought to gaze upon him, choosing to trust his wisdom over ours. I remember several months ago going through a really difficult uh, season where I didn't feel like God was doing what I thought he ought to be doing. And in the midst of this, a friend shared with me, she was praying, and she got this kind of word from the Lord, and she wrote it out to me. She, she shared with me a verse, part of this was a verse in John 13, that I had read, I'd read many, many times, but I'd never seen this particular thing. In John 13, Jesus takes off his robe, and he begins to wash his disciples' feet, which made them all feel really awkward, don't, you know, you don't want to wash my dirty feet and all that. And, and Jesus kept doing it, and, and Jesus was their leader, he was their teacher, he was their rabbi, he shouldn't be washing their feet. So they were all feeling uncomfortable. Knowing what they were thinking, Jesus said to them, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. I mean, that's reality for us, isn't it? So often we don't realize what God is doing. We don't understand his silence. We don't understand why he doesn't seem to be answering our prayers. And Jesus asks us to trust him, to trust that he is wiser than we are. And that even if we don't understand right now, one day in heaven, we will understand. We will see all the things that God had been orchestrating and doing, and we will say, oh, that's why. That's why that happened. So this and this and this would happen. That's what you were doing, God. I see it now. Until then, God wants us to trust him. He wants us to behold him, to meditate on the truth that God's wisdom is way beyond ours. Behold the wisdom of God. Behold the wisdom of God. There's one other aspect of God's transcendence that Isaiah vividly describes. God is stronger than any power we know. God is stronger than any power we know. Beginning in verse 18, Isaiah launches into this amazing description of God's power. And he, and he sets up the argument with a vivid comparison. Check out verse 18. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. I mean, what a dramatic comparison he's setting up here. People in that day would often worship idols. They would pay a skilled worker, a metal worker, a woodworker, or whatever, to construct an idol. And then they would set it up as a shrine. And the language here I find kind of humorous, right? Because Isaiah says that the main goal of these skilled workers is to build an idol that won't fall over. That's a pretty low standard. That's what he says. Just build me an idol that won't topple, okay? Build me an idol out of wood or metal that just won't fall over. Just make sure it stands up by itself. That's the standard. The point is clear. The idols that we make, the idols that we trust in are pretty weak when it comes to power. Very weak when it comes to power. Which is what Isaiah begins to describe next. Verse 21, do you not know? <laughs> Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He, God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. 
He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither. And a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Again, this question is asked, to whom will you compare me? To your idols of wood that stand in a corner somewhere? To those people who have power over you? It is not even close. Our God sits enthroned above the earth. We are like grasshoppers in comparison. Our God has the power to remove kings and presidents and commanders. God is in control of all these things. Every time we have an election year, you know, every time we have an election year, I sense so many people in the body of Christ being filled with fear and with anxiety. Oh, what if so-and-so gets elected? What about the Supreme Court? What about this? What about that? And often as this fear festers in our heart, it gets expressed outwardly in terms of anger. I mean, there is so much anger today. On both sides of the aisle, I mean, there's so much anger. And again, among many Christians, I mean, just look at how some Christians respond to other people's Facebook posts. Why do we have to demonize someone for voting differently than we do? See, it's, it's all just rooted in fear. And it happens because we get our eyes off of God. We get our eyes off of God. We stop beholding this God who was so powerful and instead we start focusing on trying to control circumstances and people and outcomes. And God says, chill out. Chill out. Look at me, God says. Remember who I am. Focus your heart and your mind on my power, on my wisdom, on my splendor. Behold me. That's what God says to us. He says, I want my messenger to go up on the mountain. This is the message I have for my people. Yell it out. Behold your God. <laughs> behold your God. In the midst of Babylon, in the midst of all you're going through, behold your God. Look at him. See him for who he is. So how do we do that? How do we behold a God that we can't see? Well, Isaiah helps us in this regard. Um, he gives us a, a practical homework assignment, actually. Um, a Beholding God 101 assignment, okay? Uh, here it is in verse 26. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. See, notice Isaiah gives us a specific way to behold God. Go outside in the evening and just look up at the stars. Each one is a tangible reminder of God's power, of his transcendence. God placed each one of them where they are. He, he, he calls them each by name, supernovas and planets and stars. He calls each of them by name. They're all there because he put them there. Just as he created them to be. So here's kind of the underlying of that homework. Here's the underlying message. If he's big enough to handle that, he's big enough to handle what you're facing. Right? If he's big enough to put the stars in place and call them each by name, he is big enough to handle whatever you're facing. 
Now, this particular aspect can happen in a number of ways, not just as it relates to stars, because what if it's cloudy? Then what are we supposed to do, right? Uh, so how, how often are our eyes open to see and to behold the glory of God all around us? I mean, the other day I was, I was playing golf with Josh, Joshua, my son. One evening we were trying to get in a few holes before it got dark. And I was standing on, on uh, this tee box and I looked to the west from, from number four tee box there at Eaton Country Club. Yeah, this amazing view west. And so I was looking to the west and I saw this just breathtaking sunset. I mean, it was beautiful. The colors, the oranges and purples, it, just, it was just beautiful. And the mountains and all of that. So I, I just stopped for a few moments. And I just looked and I reflected on how amazing God is. God, you're just showing off right now and I'm just enjoying it. You are amazing. I mean, how often are we so busy running here and there, so busy spending hours watching TV or surfing the net and we miss the glory of God that is all around us, all around us. Recently, I was in an audiologist's office because of some hearing loss I'm experiencing and some um, ear ringing tinnitus that I have. And, and, and he began to explain how the ear works and how we perceive sound. And it is way more than just our eardrum vibrating. Um, within the cochlea of our ear, he was explaining there's this fluid which moves due to vibrations of sound. And it bends these 17,000 hair-like cells some of which function like high-quality amplifiers, making the vibration stronger and clearer so that the others create accurate electric impulses which are sent along the auditory nerves to the brain. And then the brain figures out what it's hearing and it responds accordingly. Are you kidding me? I mean, this is an engineering masterpiece. I had, you know, I had this worship moment in his office where I almost started singing, how great is our God? You know, just one of those kinds of things. I was just like, this is so amazing. And this is just one part of our body. This is just one part of our body. What about our skin? Our skin's ability to keep out some substances, but absorb others, and then to regulate body temperature through sweat. And what about our eyes' ability to see because of millions of optic nerves? And what about our digestive system? Taking any food that we eat and turning that into energy and nourishment that our body needs, and then using the circulatory system to deliver those things to the entire body. I mean, what, what, what happens because of this, which, and that, that whole circulatory system, it happens because of this thing called the heart, which happens to beat without any electrical plug-in. Every part of our body, down to the living cell, is an engineering masterpiece. Every part gives evidence of God's glory and wisdom and power. Do we ever stop to notice? <laughs> Do we ever stop to notice? Do we ever stop to behold all of the ways God reveals his bigness, his wisdom, his power through his creation? Now, there is one other tangible way God reveals himself to us. It's a way that Isaiah himself predicted in many passages, but he didn't see it. He didn't get to see it with his physical eyes. Another prophet had that privilege, and that guy's name was John the Baptizer. John was, was, was standing one day with his disciples, and he noticed a man coming towards them, and John immediately knew who this was, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. 
There's that word again. Behold, behold this Savior. Not only can we behold God through the evidence of creation, we can also behold him through the image of his son, Jesus, who walked this earth and demonstrated unbelievable power and wisdom and glory. And then he demonstrated one other amazing attribute, which is what John the Baptist declared that day. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, gave his life as a sacrifice so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could experience a relationship with this glorious God. Jesus enabled you and me to enjoy a love relationship with the God of the universe. When we behold this God through the wonder of creation, as well as through a blood-stained cross, our lives are transformed. Our perspective is renewed. Our hope is rekindled. Our God truly is amazing. He is awesome. He is worthy of our gaze as well as our praise. Church, behold your God. Behold your God. Behold your God. You know, I feel like we got to respond to the passage like this in a tangible way. So we're going to do that right now, okay? Uh, in a few ways, actually. So first of all, I want you to stand up. And we're going to read together a declaration of all that this passage describes. This is our opportunity to express to God our beholding of him. Now, I don't want this to be just a boring congregational reading. You know, I want this to be a verbal expression of our hearts as we gaze upon the glory of our God, okay? So when the words come up, let's declare this to God today. Out loud. God, we see you. You are in charge of everything. You exist beyond our understanding. You have measured the waters in the palm of your hand. You hold the dust of the earth in a basket and weigh the mountains on a scale. We see you, God of wisdom, Your understanding and knowledge are beyond our comprehension. Who can even begin to describe the depths of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge? We see you, God of power and strength. The nations are like a drop in a bucket, like dust on the scales compared to you. You are the king of the galaxies and atomic particles. You bring kings and presidents to their knees and reduce world leaders to nothing. Who could be compared to you? No one. You are holy. You have no equal. We lift up our eyes to the heavens and see the starry host that you created. You call each star by name. Because of your great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Your creation is perfect. We see you, Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to us, who died on the cross in our place, and who rose again to give us life. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We see you, Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. So we're going to respond in a couple other ways now to this passage. One is through worship, singing praise to God. So as we sing in the next few minutes here, we invite you just to, to behold your God in worship. And as that's happening, there is one other way we're going to behold God. We're going to respond to him. And that is by partaking of the Lord's Supper. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lord's Supper is a, is a way to express an experience of fresh Jesus' work on the cross for us. Jesus told us, do this in remembrance of me. Do this to behold what I've done for you. That's what he was saying. So as the Lamb of God who was slain for your sins, because of that, we could be forgiven. We are to behold him by partaking of the Lord's Supper. So here's the deal. You don't need to be a, a member of the church or a partner here to partake. If you have placed your trust in Jesus for salvation, we invite you to partake. In fact, you can do that right now. If you want to receive the forgiveness of sins Jesus offers you and, and have him live in your life forever and ever, you can just pray a simple prayer. In fact, you can pray with me right now if you want. Just pray with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are whole. You're amazing. You're awesome. And I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm separated from you because of my sin. But I don't want to be separated from you. Even though there's nothing I could do to get to you, you came to me. You sent your son, Jesus, to come to earth and to die on a cross in my place. You, you paid the penalty I should have paid. You took the hit I deserve to pay. You died for me. And I choose right now to place my trust in you, Jesus, the Lamb of God. I bring you my questions and my doubts and fears and sins and failures, just all of me. I just bring it all to you and I place all that on you. And in exchange, I now receive your life. <laughs> I receive your forgiveness. Forgive me for every sin, past, present, sins I haven't even committed yet, all covered under your blood. And now transform me from the inside out. God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in this relationship with you. And I pray that for all of us, as we worship, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we would remember how awesome you are and celebrate your goodness to us. We want to behold you, Jesus. We love you. So the way this will work, when the worship begins... If you've placed your trust in Jesus, even if you just prayed that prayer, we invite you at any point during the worship, just come up to one of the tables or back. There are tables at the back as well. There's a one gluten-free table, and it's to the right back over there. So just go to a table, take a piece of bread. You can dip it in the juice, and then you can walk back to your seat and partake there, or you can just partake right up at the table, or you can kneel to the side here. This is just between you and the Lord. So Jesus, we love you. Thank you for your body broken for us, your blood shed for us. We love you. We behold you. We love you. Thank you. Set us free to worship you now.